It's my cat knocking things Sweet. Off. Yeah. Um, and the dog's like, are you going to allow this? <laughs> I'm trying to do a podcast. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hey, guys, and welcome to the Louisville Picture Show. I'm your host, Madeline Carey, and for this episode, I spoke to Archie Borders, a producer, director, and screenwriter born and based in Louisville. I want to thank him for not just agreeing to come to the show, but for being so fun and informative to talk to. At the time of my recording, he has four feature films under his belt, the most recent of which is 2018's Under the Eiffel Tower, which was released through The Orchard and stars Veep's Matt Walsh. It follows the tale of a Louisville bourbon salesman who, after a brutal marriage proposal rejection under the Eiffel Tower, explores Paris and finds new love and opportunities. It's very good, and it's on Netflix. Archie's three other feature films are Reception to Follow, Papercut, and 2013's Please to Meet Me, a music-centric comedy which features Amy Mann and Loudon Wainwright in supporting roles. In addition to his feature films, Archie is also the founder and head of 180 Degrees Film Production with Mike Fitzer and Aaron Rourke. For more information on that, go to film180.com. And now, on to our conversation. Just tell me about yourself, what you've worked on uh, recently, what you have worked on less recently. Just tell me about what you do. Yeah, so... um... I consider myself a, a Kentucky filmmaker first and foremost, and and the way to do that is different for everybody. For me, it is you know not only to direct and write my own films, but it's also to have a company that and build a. I, I had to build a little company that allowed me to do that, and that took a lot of time to do. A lot of false starts and messed up starts and the wrong people and making wrong decisions to get to a place where we are now. Where for mm. the last ten years. You know, I've had 180 degrees, which I'm a co-owner with Mike Fitzer and Aaron Rourke. And we've produced two films through that. And then just a ton of commercials. We just finished up a lottery commercials and some other stuff, you know. So those things sustain the creative and the filmmaking part. So, and it's also nice because it allows you to um, continue to work. You know, if I had to not direct or do any filmmaking in between every film, I'd be a complete amateur. You know, I'm still... There's still so much to learn, but it keeps you constantly working and constantly yeah. trying. And, and one big thing is we have the subsidiary company um, called Emerge, which produces media for schools. Now, this sounds really boring and not film related, but, but not at all. Because you go in and you shoot these, these smaller videos with a small crew, and you can use those as an opportunity not only to keep people working and keep crew working, but you get to try stuff. And yeah. And I can tell you a great story later about Eiffel Tower where those little things helped me do some big things on that. So, yeah, I mean, so, so that's what I do. Where I'm, I'm, a, I'm a producer, director, co-writing screen person, but basically <laughs> a Kentucky filmmaker with a Kentucky company. One of your big focuses then in any of your work is keeping Kentucky in the center more or less in some way. Absolutely. And, and, Part of that comes from a really stubborn sense in the 80s. Uh, 80s and early 90s, there was a, you know, a, as you probably know, there's a, there was a huge independent film movement that was kind of, for the first time, people were really getting their hands on 16 millimeter cameras and, and smaller cameras and, were, and you started seeing movies from different parts of the country. You know, growing up, I, and I love all movies, get, don't get me wrong, I love yeah. big Hollywood movies, I love the tiny little things, I love the extra, I, you know, we watched Godzilla versus Kong last night, I mean, that's <laughs> the kind of, I'll watch anything, but there was a, that, I had never really, I, it had always been a thing where you saw all the movies I was seeing were either from New York or Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and I'm a big reader, and, and there were never filmmakers from different parts of the country, or if they were, it was really hard to see their films. Sure. So, so that time period was a really good time for regional cinema to kind of start coming up. And, um, you know, there was a lot of wonderful filmmakers, you know, Kelly Reichert and Rick Linklater, of course, and, oh, yeah. and, and Spike Lee and John Sayles was big in the 80s. He, was, he did work in L.A. and New York, but then was making these small little personal films. George Romero is a terrific example of a guy in Pittsburgh, you know, who... Uh, had a small company making commercials and videos, very much what I do. 
And yeah. to see what he was able to do with Pittsburgh as a home base was incredibly inspirational to a kid from Kentucky. You know? I'd imagine so. Yeah. So when did you start like making films or like at least dabbling into that kind of like that kind of field? Um, pretty early. I, I, I'm kind of a, a trope now, <laughs> you know, back a 70s kid who got their hands on Super 8 cameras and went out and made movies. That was me, you know, running around putting my friends in my films and, you know, doing a senior project in Spanish class and but doing a film for my senior project and it all be in Spanish, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, that was the beginning. And then I went off to uh, Southern Illinois in Carbondale mm -hmm. uh, school and uh, got, that's where I got my degree. In fact, uh, just recently reconnected with another alum from there, a guy named Carl, Carl Ellsworth, who just wrote the Russell Crowe movie Unhinged and did all these Buffy the Vampire shows. So he's back oh, in, and he's back in Kentucky and now mm -hmm. that and Disturbia and Red Eye and all these other movies. So oh, yeah. it's funny that it seems to be a recurring pattern. I have so many friends who went to LA but they end up coming back. They come they back to Kentucky. Yeah, it's pretty, you know, Lucy did that too. She went to LA for a while. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, I don't know if that's answering your question, but yeah, so those people like Romero and John Sales and those guys were huge influences. So as I'm, you know, as a kid coming out of, you know, my making my own films in my backyard to film school, it, it became a decision, you know, what do you want to do next? And right. I wanted to stay in Kentucky. I, I think that is so cool that you, because I, I, the thing is, I think Kentucky is such a cool place to make stuff because there are so many different aspects of Kentucky, you know? Right. And where are you from, like, in Kentucky? Like, Well, I, I was born in Louisville, but I grew up in Lexington. Okay. And Lexington was, if you've been to Lexington or spent time in Lexington, um, it's an interesting city, uh, town, big town, really. Yeah. It's a college town. So there's always this kind of mix between rural and much higher academic because there's also Transylvania and some other schools there. Mm. So kind of a clash. And so it, it's a very conservative town, but it's also very liberal in some ways. So a lot like Louisville more so is, a, is more, but mm. you have that rural city kind of clash, which created this weird dynamic. And I, I still think about this a lot because Kentucky and Louisville and Lexington in particular, like no other places, Lexington even more so, they're just weird. It's hard to really encapsulate. They're not Southern, but they are Southern. And, and so I don't know, there, it was, and Lucy might have talked about this, but there was a great theater in, in Lexington, the Kentucky Theater. Yeah. And it was really a film school for a lot of us. Um, if you grew up there, you know, there was the usual theaters, but the Kentucky was always showing like the Vogue showed here in Louisville. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, we did a retrospective on the movies that the Vogue theater showed. Exactly, um, they, they shared the same programming. And yeah. what they did though, what was fun was when you're in high school, they would put out these calendars. So it was oh. a calendar and each day it would show what was showing at the theater and it would be a Truffaut film or a Robert Altman film or mm. a, you know, Vim Vendors or Romero. And it was a mix of art and European films and total exploitation films, Pink Flamingos. Yeah. You know, it was just like opened up a whole world to you and mm. go to these films and you go with your friends and you go to the midnight screenings and uh, it was just a community and yeah. that in some ways was a real film school for us. Um, You're so lucky you had that because yeah. I feel like there was no real equivalent for that growing up. Uh, first of all, growing up, even in Louisville, but I grew up in Oldham County. So there was like less, um, there wasn't, even just going to the movie theater with your friends, you know, it's not the same. The only repertory thing they show are like fathom events of like big, you know, TCM favorites. Right. And right. I, so you don't get that communal, like you're learning with people. Like, yeah, exactly. That and that, that's, that's what's missing, I think. You know, as wonderful it is to have a projection room or, a, you know, be able to pull up anything at a whim, going to a place 
where you'd see friends or other like-minded people and you would all explore together and you'd see this thing in a communal setting. Yeah. There's nothing like that, mm. you know, especially when it's something that blows your mind, you know. Um, right. I, I have vivid memories of seeing like a clockwork orange on a Sunday or afternoon at two in the afternoon and coming out into the light and going, what was that? You know, and you're with your friends and you're all strangely exhilarated by what mm -hmm. you just saw. Uh, that's the feeling I miss the most, like coming out of a theater, like, mm -hmm. and everything feels like weird. And like yeah. the, the movie's yeah. like with you. That's um, magic. It's magic. It's so cool. Yes, it is magic. Um, so did it always look like a professional career to you then? Or like, yeah. was, was there a point where it was a hobby and then it became a career or like? No, you know? no. It, it, it was one of those things where um, when it hit, which was, and I can tell you when it hit, I, I'd always loved movies. I'd loved monster movies. I loved watching them late at night. Um, so it was hobbyish then. And then in seven, 1972, and this is, you know, I'd like to point to a, a movie that was like, you know, a, a stunning artistic achievement, yes. but, it, but it was the Poseidon adventure, the, the original Poseidon adventure. Okay. The SS Poseidon en route from New York to Athens was struck by a 90-foot tidal wave. Oh, my God. And capsized. Erwin Allen's production of The Poseidon Adventure. Came out, and I was a little too young to see, but my sister saw it and we're talking about it, and they would be talking about The Exorcist and all these other movies. Mm -hmm. So it's this thing, like, I want to see this thing. And then you go in, and it's the spectacle, and you're like, oh, this is what I want to do. I want to do what... Is happening here. I don't know who did this, but it clicks, you know. Yeah. Oh, people do this. And that's when it becomes an obsession and you learn everything. Yes. Again, why the Kentucky is so important because you could see everything. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, from that moment, I knew. So from a very early age, this has always been what I wanted to do. Uh, that is so cool. I love hearing people's like origin stories. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it took me a while to realize that, um, you know, when I, you meet other people through in their lives and they're, they're like, you know, I'm, I'm 20 or whatever. And I don't know what I want to do with my life. I'm always like, what is that like? I don't mm. know. It's right. always been this thing for good mm. or for bad, sometimes for bad, but you know, mostly, you know, to have that North star to always be pointing to it's kind right. of cool. I never thought that it was something I could actually like, study and like make my life around you know yeah. when I started college I was an English major and um then I took one of Remington Smith's classes and I was like well this is my favorite class because duh it is and then I was like oh, man there are more film classes and I can't just like not take them and and then English kind of went to more of the side I was like I can't I I, I you know I even if I I can't choose to go against what I'm drawn to but isn't that wonderful isn't that mm -hmm. just a wonderful feeling to wake up and know oh I get to do this thing and learn about it yes and you know having taught a lot I used to I have taught and I miss teaching but I, I used to teach film a lot yeah and like Remington that's a wonderful compliment you know, mm -hmm. to know you're touching someone in such a way that you've opened up this bigger world to them. Oh, um, absolutely. Uh, that's something else I wanted to ask you about. So you, what did you teach? Like, did you teach film production or film? What did you do? Yeah, I did a lot of everything. Yeah. When I was starting out, I, again, a lot of, a lot of luck. I, I, I loved writing about film and I still like to write about film for myself. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did uh, movie reviews for the Courier Journal. And oh, this cool. is the 1990s uh, when they still let freelancers come in and there was an actual arts department at the Courier Journal. Nice. Um, and so I wrote movie reviews and based off that, and I was working at the Louisville Visual Art Association so I could be near the film equipment, which they had. Mm -hmm. um, a, another filmmaker, Ron Schultnick, had started a program there and he had gotten the old Steenbecks from HAS and the edit tools and 16 millimeter Aeroflexes. And they taught classes. And when he left that job, I applied for it and got it. 
So I was teaching film writing and production classes, which I was incredibly inexperienced at the time, but it, yeah. I, I had a lot of passion for it. So I think right. that, that sold it. Um, but so I did that and then I ended up doing workshops and I started, and then once the film career started, I got invited to, you know, do teaching at Spalding and Bluegrass Community and Technical Colleges and UK and UofL seminars and, you know, just all sorts of stuff. And then, but the one thing, two things, I did an artist in residence program for years in Louisville at St. Francis High School, which was a mm. real indulgence on my part because I really couldn't afford to do it at the time because I was building the business and you do it for because of the love, not for the money. Um, right. I did three years at the Kentucky, um, uh, the Governor's School for the Arts, which, okay. was, which was wonderful. Because you've got you these films for that. Yeah, it's uh, the the Governor's School for the Arts has a number of disciplines. You know, dancing, yes, theater, I, all those things. I went for but creative also, writing. Exactly, wonderful, mm -hmm. wonderful. What years was this? Were these sixteen? I was there. You were there. Let me think. No, I was there 2013, 14, and fifteen. Oh I, man, we I, taught, I had taught new media. Uh, that's so cool and yeah and and it's so funny because you know and you know what that's like it's one of those things where you get this group of students who are just like I want to do this I'm ready to go and it's an, a, when you have that combined with someone um who's as passionate about it as and I'm pretty darn passionate about it uh it's just this great mix of this is a great experience it's a total submersive thing and it was great and and the the wonderful part is a number of those students who have passed through that I'm working with now. I've hired, and one of them, Mallory Jennings, who's in my first class, she works for my company now, and she's wonderful. She does all our production coordinating for all our shoots and everything. And Mark Vogt, who uh, was in my last year there, um, he's part of the company Framerate that we're also partners with, or we're all big, one big it's one big thing. Um, he's, you know, here in an LA running back. So it's great to have that continuity and, um, yeah, it's just great. So I, I, I miss teaching, but that's been some of the, the better experiences teaching I've had. Oh yeah. I mean, I always thought the governor's school for the arts was such a cool program because it, it, it exposed me to so much art just going on in Kentucky. Exactly. And exactly. You, you think for a long time, like art only exists like in New York. And like, there's a few like little things in Kentucky, but like, but That's what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. it's this yeah. active community that is always like growing and it expands to New York, it expands to LA, but like, there's just that web of people and it's sure. really, really cool. And with you, I mean, it even took you to shooting in Paris mm -hmm. and which I watched under the Eiffel Tower a few nights ago and I really loved it. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. You. It Let was me show you the director's cut sometime. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a whole story. Yeah. Okay. I would love to hear it. But yeah. Tell me about, because that is like, that's a feature film. Like, that's something, it's on Netflix. Like, it definitely broke. So, can you tell me a little bit about? maybe how you conceived it and then maybe where it got, how it got to the point it did? Yeah, I, it kind of grew out of um, a couple of things. One, uh, the initial impetus for the story came. So my career has kind of been in two parts. There was like a burst at the beginning where I did two films and they both got some attention and it was great. And then my second film flopped, okay. Mm. It was a big, pretty big budget. And it's been fun. I've been revisiting that film this week a little bit. I'll, I can tell you about that later. But um, so it flops. I go through a divorce. Um, I'm really at a low point in my life. This was around 2006, 2007. Mm -hmm. um, so you've gone from a high, crashed down, and you're kind of reinventing yourself a little bit. And, you know, I'm suddenly a single dad trying to figure out what to do. Um, and you know, you, you do whatever you have to do. So my second film was not a hit. I couldn't get another one made. I was trying to get my third film made, but nobody was really very interested. So I was having to support myself. And this is before 180, the company was existing. Um, 
I took a job <laughs> and this is the, this is the other thing. You know, I've gone from being a production assistant to production coordinators, to a line producer, to producing films, directing films, and then bottomed out and had to go back to production assistant, back to this. Yeah. And you run across the people who saw you, you know, directing a film and going, wow, you've got it made. And then the next, you know, two years later, whatever, they're telling you to go get coffee. And you can take that a number of ways. You can have an ego about it or you can go, yeah, well, this is where I am right now. Yeah. And that's where I was. And you don't always forget it, especially when they say stuff like, you know, what a, he thought he was so cool. But um, <laughs> which I never did, by the way, I promise. I was always terrified. But, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, so I took the job working as a coordinator on this horrible reality show called uh, Southern Bells. It's, it's awful. Okay. Um, the people on it were really nice. Yeah. But it was, and the crew was great, but it was just, it's, it was just awful. It, you know, it's not a good show and it was just exhausting. And, but this is, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I, I tend to weave long tails. I'll, I'll no, try this, to go back. that's the whole so point of the show. Before the show, before the LA crew comes in and all this stuff, um, I'm setting up the production office with a friend of mine, a guy named Stuart McWhorter, who's a production coordinator or a producer here in Louisville. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're sitting around the office, uh, telling stories about our love lives. And we've both gone through these terrible things. And he told me this story about when he was a young man, he invited himself on his girlfriend's trip to Paris with the family because she was graduating college and they were taking her there. And he invited himself along. Yeah. And the, it's a two week trip. And mm-hmm. the first day um, they're in Paris, they're under the Eiffel Tower and he gets overcome with emotion and he gets on his knee and he proposes to her. Yeah. And he's like, no, I, no, no, I don't want to. And it's like, and you can't take that back. You know, you can't go like, right. okay, let's just forget it and go on. It's like, you've got two weeks, you have to go. So uh, it, yeah. it, it ended, but it, it was mortifying. And, but it's also kind of funny. Yeah. Um, and when you look back on it from a better place, it's very funny. Yeah. So we, that stayed with me. And after a number of years, I got pleased to meet me made. And mm-hmm. I finally started moving back up. And I co-wrote that film with David Henry and he and I were sitting around and he said, didn't you tell me a story once about Stuart and that horrible proposal and not Eiffel Tower? And we thought, yeah. And it had been a number of years and obviously I'm a middle-aged guy. And I thought, wouldn't it be better if that young guy who proposed was my age Uh, broken and desperate, like I was a few years back. And wouldn't that be great? You know, (laughs) let's do that. So it became this kind of, funny toxic masculinity you know how does this guy recover from this stuff and that that was the impetus of it right and we wrote the script we finished the script and fortunately pleased to meet me had come out and gotten some really nice reviews so finally i i wasn't you know i'd moved back up a bit and i was able to get the film to some producers i knew in la and one company the orchard Mm -hmm. yeah yeah which judith godresh who stars in the film she had a good relationship with them from her film, The Overnight, um, which was a Sundance thing. And she said, you know, I can take this to these guys. We had private financing set up, but private financing is a real pain in the butt. It can be, um, it's just a lot more work. So when a company comes along and says, we'll pay for it, you have to then decide, okay, is this somebody, the good thing about private equity is you're, you're running the show. You mm-hmm. make an, you, you know, the, all that. When you partner with somebody, you always want to make sure you're seeing the same film. Right. And, and it felt like we were, and it would take that headache of private financing off. So we That's said, yeah. So they stepped in and they financed the movie. I bet that was an amazing feeling. It was, it was. And it was a wonderful, it was a, it was a terrific shoot. There were some issues um, we didn't see eye to eye on a few things, which uh, caused some problems initially, but um, nothing terrible. The, the the best part of it was the French crews um, were just wonderful. Um, yeah. There, you know, cinema is film is really treated as an art form there, and the 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 sense of um, you know just appreciation for it is kind of un, you know, you had everybody, the, the biggest thing I always tell people is, you know, you get on a, on a lot of films here and the keys all have read the script and that's it. On that film, 
everybody had read the script. The PAs had read the script. And you'd be sitting at lunch and they would come up and say, have you thought about this? You know, they were all so into the movie. That's so cool. Well, it was unexpected and, and really wonderful because you really had people who were really like, let's, let's make this, let's make this. And so yeah. it, was, it was wonderful. It was just terrific. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> Thank you. I I just mm, that's such a cool feeling like uh, especially being in Paris like uh, that sounds like a dream. Um, can I you mean, tell me a little bit about your previous movie? Please to meet me. Please to meet me. I yeah, this is actually Eiffel Tower is my fourth. Um, okay. I had done two others, uh, Reception to Follow and Paper Cut. Mm -hmm. And then Please to Meet Me was, Please to Meet Me was, uh, it started out, I heard it, Starley Kine, who is a, a wonderful writer, she also does a podcast, um, a, a number of podcasts, but she was a regular contributor to This American Life, um, mm. which I was listening to. Uh, I was driving my son to a birthday party and it was one of those things, this pre-podcasts and pre-being able to download whenever you wanted. Right. But um, that piece came on this American life. It was called classifieds and her segment was called everyone speaks Elton John. Mm -hmm. And I listened to it and you can still hear it on their website. It's wonderful. And I listened to it and it was just this wonderful quirky little thing. And it was like, and I'm like, well, it's not really a movie, but it's a great listen, but it stayed with me and it kept staying with me. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized it was kind of an analogy for the filmmaking experience where you get all these people together um, with completely different backgrounds and they've never met and you get them together for this one thing and they all kind of pitch in and, and it becomes either this great thing or whatever it becomes, becomes this communal experience, right? Right. Um, and that's what the film was about. So we got the rights from uh, Starley Kine. I had a really wonderful producer, Bonnie Koontz, who stepped up and we got the rights to that. And it was a super low budget film because, you know, as I said, the film before that, you know, it was a pretty big budget and it didn't do so well. So we knew I had to do something small again. And it was a small film. It was only 175,000 and we made it. Um, we got real fortunate. Joe Henry, Dave Henry's brother came on board. He's a terrific Grammy award winning producer. And oh. he brought Amy Mann and John Doe and Loudon Wainwright and just an, a ridiculous cast. For oh my God. Money. You know, Academy Award nominees and Grammy winners and they all came into Louisville and so we shot the, it here. Can you tell me the premise of the movie really fast? Yeah, yeah, it's it's about, um, it, the movie is about uh, kind of a washed up uh, indie rock legend who's having trouble finishing his new record. Mm -hmm. And he's approached by his former girlfriend um, producer with this radio show idea. And she wants to do this thing called From the Classifieds where she puts a group of musicians who've never met for one day and one day only to record a song and just record oh, that's it. Oh, so cool. And that's what they do. And they bring all these people in and they do that and they part ways and that's it. Um, so that was the movie. And uh, it just, it was one of the, we shot it in uh, 15 days, I think. Um, mm -hmm. The crew, the cast came in, everybody worked for scale. Um, and it was one of those dream projects, you know, it worked. It got into a bunch of festivals. We got a deal and an offer. We got a couple, you know, some really nice reviews and that helped a lot. The Washington Post gave us a great review. USA Today gave us a great review. And that suddenly, you know, helped us get, and that was on Netflix for two years. So, you know, it's, that becomes the stepping stone to the next film because when you're going out for something like Eiffel Tower, the first thing they say is, what have you done? And you say, oh, I just did this. And here's yeah. the review for that. And they're like, oh, so you know what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just that kind of thing you know so in the meantime you're making a living you're building a company and you're creating produce you know making commercials and doing all that stuff and you're still learning and honing you know just the filmmaking craft mm -hmm. and um it all kind of pays off oh can i tell this quick story about eiffel tower oh yes of course so, the the fun thing about eiffel tower was it was it was a pretty big budget film for us you know a little under two million but it was a tight schedule. Um, and as I said, everything went beautifully. The crews were wonderful, but there was one hiccup one day. Um, and again, this goes back to, I'm so grateful I've done so many jobs and had to work at so many levels because I've done location management and production scouting and all that. 
the crew did fantastic, but we were stuck on finding a restaurant in Paris because it's really hard to shoot in Paris. There's a lot of permits and things like that. Um, so we get there, the, the restaurant, we needed to get it secured or we needed to have a restaurant secured and we were really tight on some time. And one of the producers says, oh, I've got a friend who has a restaurant. They said we can shoot there. I said, terrific. Oh, thank God. Now, now the, that's what you're saying in your head. Now, this is a producer who is a very good at producing, but has never done location management. Okay. When you're doing a location scout, what's the parking situation? You know, what's the power situation? How long can we have it? What are the hours of, you have to know all this stuff. They didn't do that apparently. So we're supposed to go in there for four hours and shoot this scene, which is at the beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, now I'm going to do a flashback. Meanwhile, remember I told you I had the company, uh, subsidiary company that shoots all these educational videos, right? Yes. Okay. So sometimes when I'm talking to my LA counterparts, they're like, why are you shoot those little videos? Because when you go to Los Angeles or New York, if you're, especially if you're in a union, if you're a director, you only direct things. You wait till the next big commercial. You wait till the big movie. Yeah. I don't do that because I live in Kentucky and I've got a company to run. So right. sometimes I'll go in and I'll shoot these little four person crew things in live classrooms and you have to get in, shoot it, you know, get your basic coverage and get out in 45 minutes mm -hmm. or whatever it is. And it's yeah. really down and dirty guerrilla style filmmaking, right? Mm -hmm. But it's great because you learn things. You're like, how, what's the most what's the thinnest amount of coverage I can get that will still cut together into a scene, right? Yeah. So meanwhile, back in Paris, <laughs> we get there and we're all set up. We need four hours. We're going to shoot all this stuff. It's an elaborate scene with our leads and they're having dinner and blah, blah, talking. And all of a sudden we get the production manager comes over to me and says, we have to get out of here in 45 minutes. And mm -hmm. I'm like, 45, we just started. And David Wayne sitting there, Michaela Watkins is there, Matt and Dylan, mm -hmm. and they're all ready to go. And, you know, the traditional thing, actors, especially of that caliber, used to is a long master, so you, a master shot, so you can get into the scene and try some stuff out, and then the close-ups, and then we move to this, and then we grab some inserts, you know, that kind of stuff. Sure. We don't have time for that. We mm. just don't have time, because we have to get out of there. They're going to throw us out of there before we go. Oh, no. we, so... I'm like, it's okay. It's okay. Immediately you shift back into when I'm going into a little school and I'm getting this basic coverage, top of a master, top of a master, an insert, a couple close-ups out. Yeah. And I'm, this is the way we're going to do. And we start doing that. And David Wayne, who's a, an accomplished director, has done a lot of great things. He's like, why aren't we shooting a master? And I'm like, there's no time to shoot a master. And he's like freaking out a little bit. Then he mm -hmm. settles in and he gets it because he's a pro. He totally starts improvising. Now the producer's freaking out because she's like, why is he only shooting the top of a master and the bottom of a master? Where's all the coverage? And I'm like, there's no time. So we, you know, top of the master, bottom of the master, a couple close-ups, an insert, we're out. Yeah. And we leave the set. And it was the only day that was really contentious because I get this note call from the producer, like, there's no way this is going to cut together. You left that set without enough coverage. And I'm like, we had an hour and I yeah. wouldn't leave a set unless we had it. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, we don't believe it. we're going to have to reshoot it. We're going to have to redo the schedule. And I'm, and I'm really mad at this point. Mm -hmm. So I go back to my hotel room and I edit the scene together from the dailies and it cuts beautifully. Yeah. I, I mean, I know the scene you're talking about and yeah. it's, it's a good scene and it, it it's not a long scene. Well, it's longer in the original version, but. Oh, really? Yeah. It got cut way down for the release, but yeah, but it cuts fine. Yeah. Um, I, I, I wouldn't have that. noticed any issue. No. So, but that's my whole point is even if you're shooting a school video with four people and this, it's still teaching you the basics of filmmaking. Yeah. It's applicable at that level. It's applicable at a $2 million film level. Every experience you do Every, if you go out with your iPhone and shoot something, it's still training you to shoot a film. Yeah. And Anybody. people have made movies from their iPhones. I think it's incredible. But that's the kind of stuff that, you know, you can so easily get locked into, well, if I don't have 10 people on my crew, I can't make this film or sure. I can't do this. You can make something with whatever you have as long as you got the passion for it. And that yeah. was kind of the takeaway lesson from that. I mean, that's, I mean, that's probably a mentality you did grow up with the like independent filmmakers. Oh yeah. And oh, that yeah. big boom. So. And, and don't get me wrong. I, I love the big stuff too. It's great to have a 40, 50 person crew, which we had. Yeah. But time is time. Yeah. Right. <laughs>
still got to get those setups and you still have to get that stuff. Mm -hmm. That, that is a really cool story. And I think it's a very interesting story for people who want to actually like make movies and eventually get to the point where they do have like a crew of like people who are working for them and like um, getting to that point. And um, a question that I would like to ask is what's some advice that you would have for like filmmakers who see themselves in you who are going to start off who are not from New York or LA but they're from here and what would you say? I I would say first to value your voice. Um, We touched on it briefly at the beginning but when the only viewpoints represented by film are from a New York or LA perspective, nothing wrong with those perspectives, of course, but if that's the only one you're seeing, then you're always gonna be chasing after someone else's perspective. You know, writers write everywhere, you know, Mm. um, you know, regional writers, Kentucky has wonderful regional writers, you know, and their voices are distinctive. There's no reason filmmakers can't have the same kind of thing. So I would say first, trust your voice. Tell a great story. And then once you've got that great story, figure out the best way to do it. Whether you've got, you know, 175,000 or 2 million to make it, you let your limitations or your, your budget di- dictate your aesthetic. Um, and, you know, if you're trying to make something about, you know, what was, if there was the, um, and, and I'm, I'm embarrassed, I can't remember the filmmaker's name, but one of the, the uh, actors and pleased to meet me, a guy named Tim Morton starred in a movie called Men Go to Battle. And okay. it was a Civil War movie, but it was made for nothing. Mm. And I'm like, how does, you know, and it's it's a wonderful film about yeah. this epic subject. And it was made for, you know, probably half of what Pleased to Meet Me was made for. I, I'm not sure exactly, but not mm-hmm. much. They figured out a way to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's wonderful. That kind of innovation A, it happened in Kentucky, so it's wonderful. And B, it's very distinctive. And it it told that story in a very minimalist, but very human way. So yeah, trust your voice, trust your story, and then tell it, if if all you've got is an iPhone, use your iPhone. If you can get something else, get that. Find people who can do stuff better than you can do. That's another big lesson. Mm -hmm. It's like the first two films I did, I wrote myself. And they yeah. had marginal success. Once I got someone, David Henry, who could write better than me, my stuff got better because he mm-hmm. brought me up. The and minute, yeah, Dave, Dave co-wrote "Pleased to Meet Me" and "Under the Eiffel Tower" with me, David cool. Henry. And um, the same in production. You know, when it was just me, I'm doing reality shows. Yeah, <laughs> it's myself, Mike Fitzer, and Aaron. Suddenly, we've built a company that's you know, giving a lot of people a living right now. Yeah. Something I couldn't do by myself. So surround yourself with really good people. And if they have good ideas, ideas, use them. So Mm -hmm. trust your own voice, find that great story, surround yourself with good people. Those are my three big things. That's very good advice. And would you suggest for people like looking into were you always planning on starting a company like 180 or not initially no I originally just wanted to be a you know a filmmaker who went from film to film to film but Mm -hmm. when I made the choice to stay in Kentucky I realized that was not going to be a feasible plan especially when I had kids right and you have kids you know the the I need to provide for a family instinct, of course, kicks in and right. you want to give them a good life and give them opportunities. So you're like, okay, how do I do this and still feel fulfilled? You know, how many people go to do a job that they hate, but they do it because they're trying to, you know, I didn't want to be that guy. I wanted my kids right. to see someone who is excited to go to work every day, which I am. Yeah. And, and now my daughter's in the film business. My oldest daughter is. My son is a wonderful writer. My two youngest kids are looking at colleges. So that's so cool. It's a great, it's been, yeah, the last 10 years, I feel like the luckiest guy in the world. Oh, what <laughs> would you, what, what's in the future? Do you, are, have you written any more scripts that, or, yes. or what kind of direction are you thinking about? 
Well, the, the, the cool thing was recently, you know, with the pandemic, we, there's this one big movie I've been trying to get made forever and it's finally got some heat. But the thing that's, that's happening uh, right now is um, when I came back after, after Eiffel Tower, there was another filmmaker who, he, he, he lived in Los Angeles. He moved back to Kentucky. He was gonna do a film uh, here in town. His name is Corey Roderer. Mm. And he, uh, he had the script and he's like, it's a pilot for a show. Would you read it? And I said, sure. And I read it and I read the log line and I was like, oh my God, that's brilliant. And then I read the first draft and I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I don't, yeah, th this is terrific. I, it was one of those just no brainers. And I sent it to my, my friend, Ryan Cunningham. She's a producer in New York. She produces a lot of the Amy Schumer stuff. She produced Louis CK's movie, I Love You Daddy, his ill-fated film. Mm. She produced Broad City, all of this wonderful stuff. And I said, oh, you I should love Broad City. Yeah, I said, read this, tell me what you think. She got back the weekend after and said, I love it. Let me take a crack at it too. So mm. she did a rewrite. So she and Corey rewrote the script together and it's wonderful. And we're going out right now. Um, I think it's gonna happen as a TV show um first and it's so it'd be my first tv um yeah. uh project which it, it's a wonderful it's going to be a wonderful show um i was real happy that last week the kentucky tax incentives went through because i'd love to shoot it in kentucky i hope we can because yeah. during the midst of the pandemic when it was getting a lot of attention mm -hmm. we were thinking we we're gonna have to shoot for sure somewhere else um so i'm hoping we'll get to bring it back here now but is it again, set in kentucky is it's set in Kentucky because yeah every film and thing I've done has some Kentucky connection you know the first three films were all shot in Kentucky were took place in Kentucky and as you saw in Eiffel Tower he's a Kentucky bourbon salesman and he yes. mentioned a couple of times mm -hmm. so yeah so it's it, it's a Kentucky story I love that yeah. I um I like how you incorporate Kentucky into everything and I also remember before we sat down to do this podcast you said that you like to incorporate Kentucky history in your teaching too tell me about some of your favorite uh Kentucky filmmakers like who have inspired you <laughs> there's been a lot gosh um yeah. <laughs> unfortunately he's 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 so controversial uh now rightfully so but yeah. when I was a young kid reading about Kentucky filmmakers you can't get away from D.W. Griffith of course you can't um, but the innovations he did do were eye-opening because, you know, to watch and read the history of how film started as basically photograph stage plays and then moving the camera and the editing. Right. Where, you know, he didn't invent those things, but he definitely perfected and honed those things to a point where, which really did kind of give birth to at least the way we see movies now. Yeah. Um, but there's no getting away from the controversy around his stuff too, um, mm -hmm. which is good and bad. The good news is it does create conversation. And I think it elevated, it elevated it even then. People were pissed off about Birth of the Nation, rightfully so yeah. then. And it did create a dialogue and film was suddenly this art form as opposed to just a novelty. Um, so of course that, Todd Browning, of course. Yes, um, Todd Browning directed Dracula and Freaks. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, I think Freaks kind of broken because again, it was so radical and so different. I would have loved to have seen the uncut version of that, which is gone forever, but uh, it must have been amazing, you know, because it was it was financed by MGM. I mean, he was a big director at the time and yeah. MGM was the studio and they put money into it. And the original cut was, I think, 90 minutes. And now the one we see is 60 minutes. And I honestly can't believe it got made. Uh, amazing. It's, it's an amazing no yeah it's still like I haven't seen anything that like I can't think of a better word so this is going to sound kind of reductive but I can't think of anything like that like edgy even like to this day like oh it's just a primal I mean it's an um it, it's just and it's funny because his films have been criticized for being um too stagey and too you know, not the camera's not moving so much, which it's great, by the way, if you've ever seen his version of Dracula and the Mexican yeah. version of Dracula was shot simultaneously. Mm -hmm. You should watch that because the difference, it's like they watched it and said, it'd be so much better if we moved the camera here. And they Did you play the Mexican version of Dracula? Yeah. yeah, back then they would shoot 
movies for the international market. But what they did was during the day they'd shot Dracula and at night a Mexican cast came in on the same sets with a different director and shot the Mexican version. And you can see it. It's oh, wow. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's better, honestly, really except for Lugosi. It doesn't have Lugosi. Right. And that's, but it, it, it's, it's just a little looser, a little more, yeah, it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. But so obviously Todd Browning, you know, you can claim Gus Van Sant a little bit. Callie yeah. Kirby, uh, who wrote, you know, a terrific writer. Um, Allison Anders, who uh, she was briefly here. She, you know, wasn't here a long time, but I claim her. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then, you know, people like uh, William Girdler, you know. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid in Lexington, opening up the movie ads, you'd see ads for his exploitation films and that fires you up. Right. Marvel, right down the street, you know, right down the interstate. Mm -hmm. That was, and he used to live right up the street from me here at Speed, uh, uh, on Speed Avenue up there. And um, it's funny, uh, some friends of our bought his old house and they were renovating it. And he said, oh, you should come up to the third floor. And I went up to the third floor and there was an old projection booth with, uh, where he had put his 16 millimeter projectors and projected film. So it's That's really so cool. cool. Yeah, I know. It's great. So, you know, all that stuff, all those people, mm -hmm. you know, inspire you. You know, I don't think anyone's going to say William Girdler made great movies, but he had great energy and passion for the stuff he made. He was part of a very, like, still influential movement. People still talk about Abby and oh, yeah. Eva Baby all the time. You don't forget so, about Pam Greer or anything. Well, I just saw there's a Grizzly 2 coming out, which was shot in the 80s. Um, oh, wow. George Clooney and Charlie Sheen and some other people in small parts. And it was unfinished for years and they finally finished it. So his, his Grizzly series continues. That's <laughs> wild. Yeah, it's pretty funny. I wonder when that'll come out. I, I think it's out. You can see the trailer. I don't oh, know. Oh, sweet. Yeah, it's, on, it's online. I saw the trailer and I was like, oh my God. This is... I had no idea. But yeah, I mean, you know, that guy was, I, I, I you know, didn't know him, but um, he had some chutzpah. I, yeah, he did. Yeah. Um, I would love to bring you back sometime and talk specifically about one of these people, probably Todd Browning, because I think he's, mm -hmm. I, I think that'd be a great place to start. Yeah. He, yeah I, I think the, I think his heart must've just been crushed after Freaks. I can't yeah. imagine because that movie is, uh, there. that's a movie you watch and you're like, there's a person behind this, like. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. But yeah. I would love to bring you back and maybe go have a deep dive into someone who is no longer living, but very. Iconic. Oh, that'd, that'd be great fun. Love to do it. Awesome, thanks. I will probably be getting back to you in the near future about that. Nope. Well, I have loved talking to you so much. I yep. think you're gonna is... tell me something about you. What what uh what are you working on right now? Did you say 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 you imply that you were working on something? Um, I'm not really working on any film like movie making right now. Um or a written project or whatever. I mean this I, is well, this is my project right now, this podcast. Um it's my uh, capstone project for, you know, grounding up what I've learned in uh, film communications and um, English and this passion I've gotten more and more for both history and for talking to people. Like, I just love talking to people and figuring out ways to get their stories out. I'm not a hundred percent sure where that'll take me. I'm graduating in May and then I've got to move. I mean, I'm still living in Louisville. Oh yeah. I got to move a few blocks over, but like, still I got to move and I'm yeah. probably not going to be doing any big film, filmy film projects for a while, but whenever I'm settled in a little bit, I would love to collaborate with some friends and make some make some short films or music videos or something. That's wonderful. Well, 
what you're doing when when I read the stuff about what you wanted to do with the global picture show, mm -hmm. I was oh that's that's great because yeah I mean that's I think this is a great project and talking to people about this kind of stuff you know it's an art that's a real art in itself well, um, thanks really that means a lot I I just love learning from people and if anything that if there's anything college has taught me even more than any of the classes I took it's just that there are people around and connections to make all the time yeah. and I mean I of course, I'm thankful for everything I've learned in classes and stuff, but nothing has been more valuable than to me than just knowing that people like you, Robin Burke, uh, Remington exist and people that I don't even know about yet exist and that we have such a rich, you know, playing field to go off of. Have you met Ron Schultnack yet? No, who is he? Ron, um, I, I, I mentioned him briefly at the top. Uh, he used to run the Visual Art Association Media Center. He did a number of short films, one called The Legend of the Pope Lick Monster. Okay. Uh, which he was one of the local filmmakers here who really started getting some stuff out. And he's a terrific guy and a real film student. And he taught for years at um, uh, Spalding and some other places, but he's a great guy to know. Awesome. Well, I will definitely look him up then because I would, you know, I'm looking for more and more people to talk to on this show. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you for having me today. This has been fun. I, I can do this all day. Me too. I love hearing stories and thank you so much for telling yours and being just so gracious about this. Like, this is just a cool experience. So thanks. But Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me.